Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to our new series, Essentials of the Christian Faith. It's good to see everybody, those of you joining us online. So I'm glad you're here. Let me say a prayer for us, and we're gonna dive in. This is uh, gonna be a really interesting series. Lord, thank you so much for the blessings you've given to us. We appreciate the rain that we are receiving here. We appreciate, Father, the freedom we have to gather to study your word. Thank you, Father, for the freedoms that we have. I do pray for our leaders that you would turn their hearts toward you, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them courage. I pray for peace in the Middle East. I pray, Father, as unlikely as it seems that you would act and that all things would work to your plan. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as is the custom, there's the number for texting questions in during class. It should be on your handout as well, whether it's online or you picked one up on your way in. If you remember in our last series, we were studying the book of Ephesians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus and really probably into all of what's modern day Turkey. And that letter was copied and sent around. And one of the things he was telling the Christians, the believers in Ephesus was he was talking about the unity of the faith, the unity of believers. So we talked about the idea of what then is the basis for unity. You can't just say we're gonna be unified because we've decided to. People aren't naturally unified unless there's some underlying value or principle that, that unites us. And so we talked about how we, one of the great maxims that's kind of been quoted that a lot of people have adopted is the idea that we're united around the essentials of the Christian faith. And we're tolerant of diversity in things that are not essential to the Christian faith. There can be, we talked about the idea that we can have differences of opinion and you can be wrong without being evil. There is evil in the world, but it's possible to be wrong without being evil. So the question came up, so what are the essentials of the Christian faith? And so that spurred this uh, series, and I thought we would dive in and talk about what are the essential beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. And I wanna approach this a little differently, not so much like a systematic theology of, okay, you have to believe this, you can't believe that. You gotta believe both of these. You know, we could go through it like that, but that's not really the way the Christian faith came about. So I wanna take a little more of a historical perspective on it, and as we go, we're gonna pick out some milestones that are essential to the, to the Christian faith. So let me start with the obligatory map. So this is the world, uh, the ancient world, and it's a good little map because it shows, it's color-coded to show you the growth of Christianity. And the reason I wanted to show you this is you can see where from its beginnings in uh, nation of Israel, basically, Judea at that time, that it spread around the Mediterranean. And then in the second century spread even further. This isn't the only place that Christianity went. Obviously there were evangelists that went into Arabia, Parthia, Matthew is uh, reported in the church fathers as having gone to India. So I'm not saying this is the only place that the Christian faith spread, but I wanted you to see how quickly it was spreading. What I really wanted us to look at was the idea of look at all the different cultures to which it had spread. Look at the different languages. It was multicultural just from people preaching. There are different languages, different ethnicities. Now, people were united to a certain extent by the Greek language, thanks to Alexander the Great, uh, 300 years before, and they were united under Roman rule. So there was a certain element, they were in the middle of the Roman peace, the Pax Romana. So there were certain advantages that they had, but that didn't erase the cultural differences. So as Christianity spread, and as you read about the acts of the early church, you realize that Christians were attempting to define, not define, attempting to follow the essentials of the Christian faith. But needless to say, there were cultural practices. People brought their secular baggage with them. And so this was a process of becoming followers of Christ. 
So what we're talking about today is the same thing they were wrestling with then. And I don't say wrestling as in they were trying to figure out what were the essentials of the faith. They were trying to adapt their lives to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, we have to decide what we're gonna believe. No, that was pre-decided. But I want you to understand that people came, just like today, people come from different political persuasions, people come from different cultural backgrounds, different ideologies into Christianity, and they bring a lot of those ideas with them. And so Christianity is not wavering on the essentials, but you're constantly bringing people in and our minds are being renewed, as Romans 12 said. So we concluded this, that... Uh, this statement really, really characterizes a great deal of the way we at this church approach the faith, that in the essentials of the faith, we must have unity. In the non-essentials, we may have differences of opinion. And we may be wrong, but we're not evil. Uh, you know, there's so many things about which the Bible isn't entirely clear, doesn't intend to be entirely clear. Uh, things about the end times, exactly what's the nature of heaven, exactly what happens there. I mean, these things aren't spelled out in the detail that we would like. They're not essential for us to know. God couldn't teach us everything. We can't comprehend everything. So you're gonna have some different opinions on things that are not essential. And in all things, charity. In all things, a loving attitude toward one another. So this, if you think about it this way, then what we're really interested in is basing our unity on the essentials of the Christian faith. And that's what I'd like to dive into. But here's how I'd like to approach it. First, I'd like to talk to you not about Christianity because I want to take this and I want us to step back and I want to approach this from a, more of a, a way I think it will resonate with us a little bit. Here's, a, here's what I mean by that. So I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jim Gaffigan. Uh, comedian, uh, irreverent, but clean. And there aren't many that you can say that about. But he's pretty funny and he talks a lot about food. If any of you have ever listened to Gaffigan stuff, he's hilarious, he talks about food. And in one of his bits, he said, I have become a vegetarian. He says, but, he said, not a strict vegetarian. In fact, he said, I still eat steak and chicken. <laughs> okay, that was a lot funnier when he did it. But why is that funny? It's absurd. I mean, the absurd is often funny to us because he said I'm a vegetarian and then what he said contradicted it and that makes it, it funny. And so my point there is, is if you stop and think about it, every organization, whether it's the organization of vegetarians or the Greenpeace or the Knitting Club, every organization of people has some kind of boundary marker. Does that make sense? What's one of the boundary markers of being a vegetarian? Well, pretty much you don't eat steak and chicken, right? And so for him to say that is a contradiction, it's absurd. In other words, you can say anything you wanna say, but you're obviously not a vegetarian. It's like getting kicked out of the anarchy club for suggesting we need more rules. You know, it's like, no, you don't understand the nature of this organization, right? So every human organization, Every human association, if you think about it, has these boundary markers, even all the way up to cultures. Human cultures are simply organizations of people and cultures have boundary markers. You have taboos, things we don't do in America. Well, that might be very different in China. Uh, you have, these associations have boundary markers around them. And so the boundary markers in any organization are really of two kinds. And the first is that there's some kind of boundary marker about the beliefs and the principles or the values of whatever group it may be. We're not talking about Christianity. This is human association of any kind. And we call that orthodoxy. That's, we think of it as a religious word, but it's not a religious word. So if you're an orthodox vegetarian, you don't believe in eating meat. That's a core belief. That's great, right? And so it's one of the boundary markers around it. If you are an orthodox Buddhist, then you believe certain things about the nature of reality. In other words, you think it's illusory. 
If you don't think it's illusory, then you may be something, but you're not an Orthodox Buddhist. That's just part of the boundary marker of what it may be. The second thing is called orthopraxy. Orthopraxy are the behaviors that are consistent with the, and or approved by the beliefs of the, of the group. So I'll stick with, the, I'm not really trying to pick on the vegetarians, but it's easy uh, and because it's such clear cut and everybody understands that. So what's the orthopraxy of vegetarians? Well, they have some no-nos and that is don't eat steak and chicken, right? We eat plants or, and I know there are several, all of you vegetarians out there, I understand there are many flavors of vegetarian, but you get the idea. So it's not just a set of beliefs, it's also a set of practices as well. And those two things together make the boundaries of any, any organization, all the way up to governments, to cultures, to clubs, to uh, any kind of an organization is gonna have some boundary marker for what's in and what's out. Even nation states, which by the way is a relatively modern invention, uh, it, it, nations, as we understand it, we grew up with nations and a map of the world with lines drawn on it. That's really not been the case for most of human history, but this is an example of that. Even nations have physical boundary. Well, some do have physical boundaries and borders that you you know that delineate one nation from another. So orthodoxy, orthopraxy. And what I, I want us to understand is we're not even talking about Christianity at this point. I want us to think when we talk about the essential beliefs of Christianity, that is God-given, that is inspired, but you're, you're going to see a lot of criticism for Christianity for being exclusive. And I just wanna point out the obvious. Every human organization is exclusive by definition. You have a boundary of beliefs and practices, either positive practices or negative, do this or don't do that, in every human organization. And so I just wanna take a little broader view of this so that we don't home in on Christianity and say, Christianity's unique in this regard. It's not unique in this regard. It's unique, but it's not unique in this regard that it has boundary markers of who's in and who's out. So what then, are the orthodox beliefs and the approved practices of Christianity. That's what we're basically trying to say. I'm not interested in this and saying, let's start dividing people up here. Who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. We just wanna talk about this like the vegetarians. What does it mean to be a vegetarian? And what does it mean to not be a vegetarian? We're doing the same thing here. We're just trying to put some boundaries around what God has said that this group of people called the church, uh, the children of God, the New Testament uses a lot of different metaphors for this, but those Christ followers, what are the markers in both beliefs and in practice? Well, I'd like to go back and I'm gonna quote some things out of the Bible, but for the moment, I want you to, to think I'm quoting the Bible as a historical document. So I wanna start with first principles. And the first principle is every organization has boundaries in beliefs and practices. I wanna go look at what are those right beliefs and right practices of Christianity. And I wanna go back in history and I wanna look at the early Christians. So the early Christians, you know a little bit about them from non-biblical sources, but not very much. You know some of their practices. They would meet at dawn and sing hymns and worship uh, the son of God, the son of their God. You know that there was indeed someone named Christ who was crucified by the Romans under Pontius Pilate. The, this much comes from secular sources of the time or shortly after the time. So there's certain things you know from secular sources, but very, very little. What you mainly know are from the historical documents called the New Testament, and they are historical documents. They're not just historical documents, but they are not less than historical documents. So I wanna look at this as a historical document. And so Jesus is attributed as saying this, and this shapes what you see the early church doing. 
So what is Christianity really about? Jesus said it this way. He said, uh, as you know, from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you to observe or keep or obey all of my commandments. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This tells us several things about the, the historically about the nature of what Christianity is, but tells us two really important things. One is that Christianity was a matter of following Christ. I'm gonna use the phrase following Christ rather than disciple simply because disciple is a word that we, that's been loaded with a lot of baggage, but that's exactly what's happening. But basically, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a learner, you are a, a student, you are committed to Jesus Christ. Then a little bit later in the book of Acts, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch in Syria. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. So Saul started out as a Sunday school teacher after uh, his conversion. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word Christian as a noun anyway appears in the New Testament three times. It's not a phrase that the early believers, the early followers of Christ used for themselves. So when this says they were first called Christians, they didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians by people who were not followers of Christ. And it was actually intended uh, to not be a complimentary thing. I mean, it wasn't rude, but it wasn't intended to be complimentary, meaning those people that are crazy followers of this Jesus called Christ, okay? So they were called Christians by other people. And you'll see that in the other references in the New Testament. So what then, though, did they think about themselves? What did, and this is really insightful for what is the nature of Christianity. What did the people then, how did they talk about themselves? Well, it was a little bit different. And it's a real key to understanding the, what the original nature of Christianity is. These are snippets that I plucked out. So you can follow the references. Uh, but what I wanna highlight is this word, the way. Uh, the path, the road. And asked for, uh, Paul asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if you found any belonging to the way, any of these followers of Jesus, if he found any of those people, he could uh, arrest them and bring them to Jerusalem. Later, Acts 19, and about that time there arose a big disturbance concerning the way. And again, Paul's confessing in Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison men and women, etc. all that, according, that lived according to the way, which they call a sect, which the Jews call a sect. He says, but this is a way. That phrase is really telling. I mean, it goes very well with the, the passages I just showed you. So how did early followers of Christ conceive of themselves? How did Jesus conceive of his followers? He conceived of them as disciples, which is an action word. To us believers too often is, is a passive word. And it's not in the New Testament, but in English, if I say I believe something, we tend to think of that as a relatively passive term. It's a state of mind or an opinion that I hold. I'm not critiquing it. I just want us to get beyond the English word into what the scripture's talking about. So Jesus is clearly talking about uh, disciples, people that are following him, discipling under him. Um, this is talking about these people that are followers of Christ have a way of living. They have completely changed their way of life. We see that in little ways. I mean, you might just say, you know, I changed my way of eating or I changed my way of doing something, and I changed this behavior over to this behavior. Well, it's that kind of an idea. People that became followers of Christ 
changed the way that they lived. They changed their beliefs and they changed their practices into a completely different way of living. So why am I making such a big deal about this? I really wanna go back down to the studs, so to speak, of this structure and build back up because I want us to get out of our 21st century mindset of what the church is. And because a lot of times we bring our biases, our cultural biases, what we've grown up with, to what are the essentials of the faith. And I would argue that's one of the reasons we have as much squabbling as we do amongst Christians is we have sometimes, and I, I don't say this in any accusation, I truly mean we, including me, have sometimes made the non-essential things kind of essential things. And I realize that given that that's our mindset, why don't we go back and try to reorient ourselves and say, what did those first Christians and what did Jesus envision of his followers? And he envisioned them as changing their way of life. So much so that it stood out. It stood out to the Jews, then it stood out to the Romans, and they go, you guys don't think and act like most of the people around. You have a different way or a different path in life. So again, I want us to just soak that in a little bit and just let go of some preconceptions. So then the question becomes, if you think about it in the early church, what characterized that way of living? So I wanna translate the question, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? I actually wanna go all the way back and say, well, that's actually the Christian life, is this completely new way of thinking and this new way of living. Well, what characterized that way of living? Does that make sense? Those would then be the essential things. Well, Jesus said it this way, and this is historically, reported that this is what Jesus said about himself. And I'm just plucking this out of John because it's just so compact. In John 14, 15, this is the evening before Jesus is gonna get arrested that night and get, they're on their way to Gethsemane, basically, that evening. He's gonna get arrested in Gethsemane and crucified the next morning. And he has this long talk and this teaching with his disciples. And in chapter 14 and 15, look how many times you see this idea. And this is not all of them. I just plucked out five. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them or observes them, that's the person who loves me. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come into him. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept the Father's commandments and I abide in his love. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Other places in the gospel, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. Uh, in the letters, in the rest of the New Testament, you'll see the same idea over and over. But that's a really important clue to me when you think about what characterized, what governed this way of life. We haven't forgotten our orthodoxy and orthopraxy. If this is a brand new way of living and this is an association of people called disciples or followers of Christ or the ecclesia, the church, then there's some kind of boundary, isn't there? Well, what is that boundary? Well, it appears that Jesus said, I'll tell you what the boundaries are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's just so embedded into the Christian faith. But what does it mean to love me? Do what I told you to do. Ah, so then the person who wrote the rules for this club is Jesus himself, right? This is not a man-made movement. It's not like the vegetarian society, and I'm not bashing it, I'm just saying somebody got together and said, okay, who's in and who's out? Do Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets, are they okay? Well, yeah, we'll make an exception for those, but nothing else, it's just plant-based besides that. In other words, some people got together and came up with the boundary markers. What are the boundary markers? What are the things that are distinguishing and characteristics of followers of Christ? Obedience to the commands of Jesus, okay? 
Again, I'm not trying to go too fast. I just want to start at the beginning and I want to build up a little because I want us to come at this with a little fresher, fresher point of view. So how then, that raises an interesting question. How then will you know what the commands of Jesus were? How do you and I know? If Jesus has defined the boundaries of belief and practice, right? Our values, our beliefs, and the things we do, and by inference, the things that we don't do, that this is the boundary marker of what followers of Christ are about, how do we know what those are? Well, interestingly, God himself gave us that in two major ways. So again, how do you know what it means to live the Christian life? God gave us two things, and the first was eyewitnesses. And this is something we, we probably don't pay enough attention to. So this is First uh, John 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, we have seen with our eyes. We have looked upon him and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. He's talking about Jesus. We have seen it. We are telling you about it. We are going to proclaim to you what he did and what he said. He said, we are going to proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you too may have fellowship with us. And I want to suggest to you maybe a, a way to translate that in our minds is having koinonia, having fellowship with one another is so you can be in the group. Again, that's a secular way of thinking about it, but you get the idea. It's like, I'm going to tell you what are the boundaries? What are the beliefs and what are the practices? How do you know, John? I was there. I saw it. I heard it and I'm proclaiming it to you. And I wanna camp out on that for just a second. This is very, very unique amongst all the associations in the world, and let's just talk about religions. Very, very unusual that you have eyewitnesses establishing an ideology or a religion. And you have people who live to testify about it and go through all the world and tell everybody they know all about it. You remember that uh, Paul talking about the resurrection said, you know, Jesus appeared after se there's several things in the scripture at the time, but I just want to remind you of a couple. One, he said, you know, there are 500 people he appeared to, and a lot of those people are still alive. Why don't you go ask them if you want to? In other words, one of the things that these boundaries are based on are the very words of Jesus Christ. How do you and I know what they were? Because there were eyewitnesses who transmitted them. That's a very powerful idea. It's very hard historically to rebut eyewitnesses. Some of the ways you tend to see um, atheists or secular people attempt to rebut this pretty unsuccessfully, and I mean that when just a just a, a scholarly kind of point of view, not a terribly compelling argument to say these guys lied. That's hard when you look at their lives. Now, if they all became mega billionaires because they invested in Tesla, I'd say, hey, maybe there's something funny going on here, but that's not what happened, is it? In other words, they appear to be really good witnesses. There's nothing in it for them to lie. Well, they were fooled. Well, in that case, Jesus fooled a lot of people. You, you get my point is the eyewitness accounts, historically speaking, you probably, you and I probably have less certainty about certain things of the founding of this nation, you know, 250 years ago than we do about this. And I'm not saying that we don't have good information about that. I'm just telling you that we have as good information about this as, as quality of witnesses as anything else. Far better than most historical things you believe. From a historian's point of view, this is compelling. I would just say these people believed what they were saying. This is indeed what they saw. Now, how you and I may explain it, how you and I, whether or not you and I might believe the claims Jesus made, well, that's outside the realm of a historian. But as far as the veracity of what they're saying, that's powerful and God chose it to be that way.
Does that make sense? It's a powerful witness to us to convey what are those boundaries? What were the commands of Jesus? What is the practice of Jesus? So first is the eyewitnesses. Your New Testament is composed of eyewitness testimony and things that are written by people who spoke to eyewitnesses. We typically call it apostolic authority, meaning everything in your New Testament, the early church felt could be traced to an apostle. All eyewitnesses of Jesus. Does that make sense? That's how, I'm really painting with a broad brush here and making this really quick, but that's fundamentally how your New Testament documents were picked. So for example, you could say, uh, there's so many other uh, documents, early documents, and it's almost like a cottage industry anymore, but say the Gospel of Thomas or the secret Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, etc. these other accounts of what Jesus said and did. Why are they not in your New Testament? Well, there's a whole series out there. If you wanna look on the resources page, we talk about it, but here's the short version. They can be dated way, way, way late, and you can definitely prove that none of those had any connection to an eyewitness. Beyond that, they're also kind of bizarre. You know, they don't, they're not consistent with anything else. I mean, it's not a hard call on this, but as far as the early church, they wanted all of this to be linked to the apostolic authority, the eyewitnesses. Second thing is the claim that early Christians that Jesus himself made about this is going to be more than a human document that only relies on human eyewitnesses. As powerful as that is, it's gonna be more than that. So here's Jesus speaking. He said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I have said to you. So you have eyewitnesses, but Jesus said there's, it's going to be supernatural. It's not, as compelling as this is historically, it's not just going to be, I was, my name is John, I was there, I saw all of this, and 20 years later I wrote it all down. That's pretty historically compelling. 50 years later I wrote it all down. I mean, you have no idea how unusual that is in historical situations. That's really powerful. But Jesus says, no, it's gonna be more than that. The Spirit of God himself is going to, we call this inspiration, is going to see to it that what you write accurately reflects the beliefs and values and the practices that Jesus himself taught. So I want to think about what we're building here. We're just building, we're actually not building, we're following the chain from any human institution to, well, what then are the boundaries of the Christian institution? Well, actually, we know that from history and God himself has intervened to do it. Here's one example of many. Paul writing says, now we have not received the spirit of the world, meaning I'm not making this stuff up myself, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So where does, does our knowledge of this come? It comes from eyewitnesses and it comes from the very spirit of God, making sure that you have clarity about what those commands were. Now, some might say, and I'll brush this aside because it's also a trivial argument. I mean, it just, just doesn't hold a lot of merit, is that, well, that's probably true originally, but you lived 2,000 years since then, and people have been writing this down, which, by the way, is also extremely unusual. I put a picture of probably the oldest fragment of the New Testament on the back page of your handout. It's, one, it's the Rylands Papyrus, and it's dated between 100 and 150. There is no historical document in ancient times that has a copy anywhere close to that, that time in history. I mean, that's just like tomorrow in historical terms. 
And so the idea is, well, then how do you know, even if you know that Jesus' words and what he said were propagated by eyewitnesses and the Holy Spirit inspired them as they wrote these things down in the letters to the churches and in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, but how do you know somebody didn't take liberties and change the whole thing? Again, I still wanna brush that aside a little bit because this isn't an apologetic course, but if you just stop and think about it, when you've got copies that early that still match what you have today, you don't have a lot of hanky-panky going on. And just to give you an idea, there are in Greek, which is what it was written in, more than 5,800 fragments, pieces, or whole copies like that. Uh, it's just unbelievable how much attestation you have to the veracity of the documents that you have today. So think about what, what God has given us here. That's really what this is, is he said, look, I'm gonna make an organization in ways that you will understand. For example, even the word for church, ecclesia, was a very common word at the time. I mean, we sometimes like to say it means those who are called out, and so it means church. You know, actually, true, but, but not terribly. I mean, my point is, is that in the time of Plato, 400 years before, when the citizens got together to vote, think when Congress came together to debate a law, that was called an ecclesia. In other words, it's an association. It has boundary rules of who can be in and who could be out. The Athenians, you had to be a landowner to be in. So it's just another organization. And God said, look, I'm gonna use terms you understand. We're gonna make an organization here. And it's gonna be called an ecclesia because you guys all understand what that is. And it's going to have boundary markers, but it's gonna be a little different. People aren't gonna come up with this. I'm gonna tell you my children, I'm gonna tell you my people, Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you my followers, here's what it means to be a follower of mine. Does that make sense? That's essentially what it means to be a follower. The fact that God took very, very good care that you can know authentically what Jesus said and what Jesus did to a, to a level of scrutiny that is far beyond secular standards, okay? So why am I taking this much time to get here? Because in ancient times, just as in now, I'll take you to Jude. So Jude's writing, hard to know exactly when, personal opinion, maybe 70s, 80s AD. I mean, first century, obviously, but probably uh, pretty early. But look what he says. Beloved, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but instead, I'm gonna write you a different letter. I found it necessary to write appealing you to hold on to the faith, the set of beliefs and practices that was once and for all delivered to the saints, the holy people of God. Why, first of all, it's interesting that he says, there is a set of rules, a boundary, a set of principles, beliefs, and actions, and there are people who are arguing about it. They called that heresy in ancient times. And that word is kind of taken on a really bad connotation, but it's all over your New Testament. It's a normal word. A heresy is somebody that is a vegetarian and eats steak. That's heresy. I don't mean it as in, well, we gotta go burn them at the stake because they're a heretic. What that word really means is somebody who's crossed over the boundary, like our friend, the comedian. I'm a vegetarian, but I eat steak and chicken. You're a vegetarian heretic. That's what that means. That's what Jude is talking about. He said there are some heretics, meaning people that say, I'm part of the group, but you do not share the values and beliefs and mind of Christ. You do not share the conduct and you are not followers of Jesus Christ. So in the New Testament, you will see them reiterating what does it mean to be a follower of Christ just like we're doing today? That's pretty useful in the sense that we have the same question that people had then and your New Testament is addressing that question. 
He said, certain people have crept in, they joined the club, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people. What does he mean when he says ungodly people? You and I think he means bad people. Ungodly means, oh, you're evil. Maybe, but I want you to take it a little more literally. What is an ungodly person? What is an unvegetarian person? Bad person? No, but you're not a vegetarian, are you? Because you don't follow the rules. An ungodly person is someone who follows some way of life, but it isn't the way of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So read it a little more literally. He said these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny their own Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So again, I hate to berate this, but it's basically saying we've got members in this club who are not following the rules of the club. And that's what you're saying here. Now, I'm taking a trivial situation, comparing it to an important situation, but I want us to think about it in this way because I'd like us to recapture the idea of what does it actually mean to be a Christ follower. And so it means that we live and think and participate in a way of life that is one that Jesus has taught us and showed us. Obey my commands if you love me. And love is included, it's not just, I got a bunch of rules. Love is included in that. Compassion is included in that. Forgiveness is included in that. It's not just a do this, don't do that. It is be like Jesus himself. Think like Jesus, act like Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God is going to form you into the image of Jesus. It is a way of living. Okay, and so God has intervened to make it possible for us to know what that is. So the first essential, and I want you to kind of think about it this way, what is the first essential thing about the Christian faith? It is simply a commitment to follow Jesus on Jesus' terms. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it. Who made the rules for this club? Pardon my language. Who made the rules for this club? Jesus did. You wanna be in the club? Then obey what Jesus said. So, first rule is, first essential of Christian faith is that Jesus is the author of our faith. Jesus is the one whom we follow and we follow him on Jesus' terms. Think Luke chapter nine, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What's that fundamentally saying in the terms that I'm using is my terms. You're gonna surrender to me. We could say a lot of other things, but in my little analogy, you follow me on my terms. That's the first essential of the Christian faith is we follow Jesus on his terms. So how do we know what those terms are? Well, you have the Holy Spirit and you have uh, the eyewitness accounts and that brings us to the Bible. And that's the first, that's where I actually wanna start. A lot of times you might start with this as well. You have to believe certain things about Jesus. True, we'll get to that. You have to believe certain things about God. But I actually wanted to start from the very, very beginning. Let's just go back to the studs and say, what do we know historically? What then do we know God has done? And that leads us to the Bible, as you have it, is, first of all, inspired by God. These are eyewitness accounts that God has, when I say inspired, I mean God himself has participated in the documents that you see. That makes sense? It's not just, I'm John and I wrote it down as best I could remember. It's more than that. That would be powerful historically, but that's not enough. God said, I'm going, my spirit is gonna participate to authenticate what you have. Christians disagree a little bit sometimes about what inspiration is. What was God's spirit's role in this? Some would say inerrancy, and this is an argument can be important, probably not for this talk right now. But the idea of inerrancy means that everything in the, let's just stick with the New Testament for a minute because we're talking about Christian faith. Everything in your New Testament, God 
put it there. The Holy Spirit put it there. The eyewitness saw it, wrote it down, but it says exactly what the Holy Spirit wants it to say. There are no errors. There's nothing wrong in what is said. Everything that is said is true. Infallibility came along a little bit later in history, and infallibility of the scriptures is the idea that everything that has to do with being a follower of Jesus Christ is correct. All the club rules are correct, but certain historical things, certain remembrances might be incorrect. That's fundamentally the difference between inerrancy and infallibility. You may have a question on your mind and go, gosh, I wonder what this church thinks about that. Well, look on the webpage, I'll save you some time. We believe that everything in the Bible is true. And it says, here's the way I like to say it, the Bible says exactly what God wants it to say. It says it in the different voices and the different styles of the authors, but it says exactly. In other words, if God intervenes to authenticate what is being passed on to you, he didn't do it halfway. I mean, that's our understanding of this. I understand that there are Christians who see this a little differently. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but that's how we understand it. So the Bible, one of the, with the key ideas, these are essential items of the Christian faith. But I wanted you to see how we got to these items instead of just plucking it out and said, you have to believe the Bible's inspired by God. I really would like to provide a little more reasoning and background to that and put it in the framework of why did God give us the Bible? Is it just some people wanted to write it, get it on the bestseller list every year? No, this is part of the plan for us to understand what does it mean to live the way? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? So the Bible's inspiration is an essential idea. Again, Christians may disagree a little bit about the exact nature of that inspiration, but fundamentally, the inspiration of scripture is an essential idea. You can understand that. If, there is no, if there's no standard, you say, look, I just love Jesus. Well, I don't wanna be rude, but you don't even know Jesus. The only thing you know about Jesus comes from this Bible. So maybe you ought to have a vested interest in whether or not it's actually true. You see what I'm saying? So, but God took care of that, didn't he? He inspired this. He ensured that the eyewitnesses and the Holy Spirit passed this on to us just the way God intended it to be passed on to us. That's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is believing that's true. If you don't believe that's true, how, how do you even know who Jesus Christ is, let alone how to follow him? Question. When, when you say... Go ahead, I'll repeat it. Okay, when you say that um, these are non-negotiables, are you saying that believing the Bible is inspired and authoritative is a salvation issue? So I knew salvation was gonna come up. It's, it's not that this is difficult, it's just it's hard to explain this. Salvation is a biblical idea, obviously, but I, I wanna challenge the way we think about this, is, is kind of where I'm going with this, is if you think about, because this is not the way the early church thinks about this. This is not, I would argue, the way Jesus thinks about it. This is not the way the New Testament talks about salvation, being rescued, being saved. We as Westerners think salvation is a self-contained idea and following Christ is another self-contained idea. And we break those two things apart. That's just part of our Western heritage of thought. It's just a habit that we are in. I'm not condemning it. It's done great things for us to be as analytical as we are, to be as compartmentalized as we are. But if you happen to have any friends who are, say, from... Uh, China, any, fr any friends, if you have any friends who are Buddhists, it'll drive you nuts because they do not think like this. It's a Western way of thinking. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm gonna argue with you, it's not a biblical way of thinking. 
Here's, here's an easy example. We argue over, are you saved by faith, by grace through faith, or are you saved by works? This is fundamentally the Protestant versus Catholic. I'm simplifying, but that's a real difference of opinion, right? And so some people would point to James and say, see, James says works. Others would point to Paul says, saved by grace through faith. We did the whole Protestant Reformation thing about this, by faith alone, you know, in Christ alone, etc. And we split those two apart. But you, and I say this is an example because this one's an easy one. You guys realize if you read the Bible, it does not split those two apart. The Bible does not conceive of the idea of placing your trust in Jesus and not walking the way. You understand what I'm saying? The Bible, it's not a category of thought for the Bible. It's a Western category of thought. We like to break everything into its constituent components. That's a cultural thing. But it's not a biblical way of thinking about it. Faith and works, which is it? I don't even understand the question. There is no such thing. You can't have faith that doesn't work itself out through love. So I want you to think about salvation and following Christ in the same way. I'm gonna argue to you that when you read the New Testament, those are not two different categories of thought. Does that make sense? To say I'm saved, but I don't follow Jesus is, it's just a non sequitur. I mean, it doesn't make any sense in New Testament terms. So that was a long-winded windup because I'm not saying the questioner had this behind it, but there is no answer to that question in a Western way of thinking because the Bible doesn't address that question. There's no such thing as salvation without following Christ. Here's another way of saying it. Will Jesus be your savior and not be your Lord? Bible says, I don't even know what you're talking about. No. Jesus says, if you love me, obey me. In other words, it's not a bad thing. It's just like it just goes together. So the idea of salvation, when you think about it, is this required for salvation? I wanna answer the question, and that is, this is part of the orthodox beliefs. If you don't believe this, I don't know how you could be a Christ follower. I don't know who you'd be following, and I don't know what your rules would be. You'd be like a vegetarian that ate steak. It's like, well, I guess anything goes, right? So I, I don't want you to feel like I'm skipping around on that question. I just want to conceptualize it a little differently. We're committed to following Jesus Christ. The inspiration of the Bible is the only way you know that this is what Jesus Christ said. And these are the rules of the club. If that didn't clarify it, Hopefully you forgot the question by the time I got through with that answer. Okay, why do you think that we don't have more scripture written closer to the time of Jesus' death by the other apostles? It's a small handful. Yes, good question. So this is an opinion question. So you're gonna get an opinion, okay? The text doesn't address this question. So just be aware, this, this is one guy's opinion. Question is, why do we not have more writings from some of the other apostles? Um, and why do we not have some closer to Jesus' death? The gospels were written very close, with the exception of John, which I believe was written later in life. But the consensus opinion is the other accounts of Jesus' life, probably by the 50s AD, and let's assume the resurrection in 33, that's pretty quick. Uh, and so, um, considering that they were dodging people trying to arrest them and beat them, you know, it's pretty good. You did a good job on that writing assignment. But basically, it is pretty quick. Why not the others? The scripture doesn't say. The church fathers, by the way, don't have an opinion about that either. I mean, tradition, church tradition, I'm not aware of any opinion on that issue. So the obvious answer is I do not know. However, based on what we just talked about is, God gave us everything we need to understand what does it mean to follow Christ? And just as he chose some apostles to do certain things and others to do other things, for his purposes, he chose these writings for us to have. Why choose Paul? 
who wasn't one of the original 12, but who encountered Jesus face to face later. God has his purposes. But that's an opinion question and I don't, I don't know that I have a compelling answer other than this is the way God chose to do it. Okay? Second thing, and I want this to be based a little bit on reason. If you follow where we've come, this is not controversial. This, this has to be true. The Bible has to be an authentic representation, and I've kind of argued to you as why it's very reasonable to believe that, has to be an authentic representation of what are the beliefs, the orthodoxy and orthopraxy. If not, there, it, you, no one can answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? But God has provided that for us. You, we need to believe, we need to accept, and I would argue it's a very reasonable thing to accept. This isn't just a jump, uh, you know, blind faith in the dark. God says, you're reasonable people. It's reasonable to believe this. Do you trust me? Well, certainly God, you've given me every reason to trust you. Yes, I believe this is inspired and I believe it's authoritative. Those are two different things, but those, are, those two things are foundational to living the Christian life, is to know how do I know what the boundaries are, what is the right beliefs and right practice, and how do I know that they are authoritative? They came from Jesus. That is the source of our authority. And so you'll see that over time, a lot of the, I'm gonna argue that most of the quote, heresy, and I, I hate to use that word because of the baggage, but most of the boundary disputes that we have about Christianity come from this. Either denying the inspiration of the scriptures in one form or another, and playing around with the idea of are the scriptures authoritative or not. And so this is indeed one of the foundations of what does it mean to follow Jesus, is you have to know what, what are the parameters, and God has provided it. Well, then I need to accept that the Bible is given to us by God through very reasonable means, oh my goodness, eyewitnesses, what more could you ask for? Even secular people think, well, at least you got eyewitnesses, right? I don't believe it, but I can't argue it. And secondly, that it's authoritative. These are things that come from Jesus. They come from the very Holy Spirit of God. Believing that, that what you have in, in the New Testament is inspired and authoritative for us is sort of like having a charter for your club. You don't have a club if you can't point to the rules or the charter for your club. This is the charter for our club. Boy, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying that that way. But I want you to see the analogy. If, if you don't have an authoritative source that can be traced to Jesus Christ, you, don't, you can't answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Christ? Thanks be to God that he has made this easy and clear. And I know this is probably for most of the people listening to me or not. This is, Terry, this is elementary. We don't have heartburn with that. But I wanna approach it that way for two reasons. There are people listening that I want you to realize if you don't agree with that, follow the chain of, of reasoning. Let's, as, as God says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. God has appealed to our reason as well as to our faith. God has gone out of his way to make this clear to us. And secondly, when we build on this, I wanna build from this foundation. I wanna build from the ground up instead of just throwing doctrines out there. This, this course is not as much in who's in and who's out. I don't consider that a very, a very uh, meaningful thing to do. We're not interested in saying you're out, you're in. I mean, maybe we are, but that's really not a worthwhile pursuit. What it is, is let's understand our faith better. What are the essential elements of our faith? Not so we can kick people out, so we can bring people in to the club. And you can't do that until you know, here's what we do. Here's what the way looks like, okay? So that's the essence of the first essential is how do you know what are the rules of this club? And God has made that very clear, is that the Bible is inspired and the Bible is authoritative. So what's the next step? Now that you actually have the charter, you have the authoritative source of what Jesus, what he thought, what he did, what he commanded us to do, what's the next 
thing that is core to defining what is this way of following Jesus. And I'm gonna suggest that it's really worth examining what is the gospel? What actually is the good news about Jesus Christ? And I think it might be, I'm not saying it's gonna surprise you, I hope that it's very, we're very comfortable with it, but I think if we step back and we say very well, what did Jesus say the good news was? What did Jesus say his death on the cross and his resurrection, what does that mean? Jesus, that is, that is the gospel. What does that event mean? And so what does the Bible say that event means? because that's a formative idea, a formative value, and it leads to all of our orthopraxy. So this week, I want you to be very comfortable, read your Bible. God went to a lot of trouble for you to have that Bible. It's inspired, it's authoritative, read it, the whole thing. Next week, we'll talk about the gospel. I'll see you then. <laughs>